It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 393 for May 18th, 2014. This week, don't forget to enter the drawing for the Corel Graphics Suite X7. Details on the website. Dealing with email on a small tablet is proving to be a lot easier than I thought it would be. Life without Firefox continues, and in some ways, it's better. Have you done anything to protect your smartphone from theft? Or do you protect the information that's on it? And in short circuits, the FCC makes its move against net neutrality. A European court ruling could affect search engines here. And a paper I wrote back in the 1970s comes back to haunt me. Tablets, no matter how big, seem to be a challenge for text-heavy applications. Email, for example. When I first started using a tablet, my email responses were usually limited to a word or two, typed slowly with my thumbs. An email application designed for tablets and a keyboard application that provides a swipe or, if you prefer, glide option has changed all that. Google provides its own email client that looks and acts a lot like K9 with a Google interface, which is probably because both applications are built on the same code base. K9 Dog Walkers, that's what the developers call themselves, K9 Dog Walkers, have just done a better job with it, so I'll stick with K9. For one thing, K9 can sync with multiple accounts and display them in what's called a unified inbox. That makes on-the-go mail review simple. And if you set K9 up using the Internet Mail Application Protocol, IMAP, instead of the Post Office Protocol, POP3, it's easy to get rid of messages that you don't want to see on your desktop or notebook computer ever. The user interface is simple and clean, but the amount of customization is surprising, particularly for a tablet-based application. And if you leave your tablet powered all the time, but you'd like K9 not to bother alerting you to messages when you're sleeping, you can turn off alerts during specific hours, or turn them off entirely if you prefer not to be interrupted at all. And before you ask, yes, K9's name and logo stem from a dog-like robot in the British cult TV series, Doctor Who. The K9 interface is far more configurable than any other email client I've seen for Android devices, and I've seen several of them. Choose whether you want to see the subject line or the subject line and some of the text. Choose how much of the message you want to see when you open a message to read it. This is particularly helpful if you're on a slow connection or on a metered connection. No need to download all of a 3 gigabyte message with dozens of photos if you're paying a wireless provider for every byte. There's not a lot of choice when it comes to themes, though. You can have light or dark, kind of like KFC. Nothing else. But you can choose the date format and how messages are sorted. There's even a built-in search feature that targets not only the subject line and the sender's ID, but also text within the message. Canine dog walkers also offer Caton in both free and paid versions. The primary difference between the two seems to be that Caton includes the ability to edit formatted text, while Canine is essentially plain text only. 
Caton can also display the sender's picture, if you've loaded it, will properly display threaded messages, can encrypt or digitally sign messages with OpenPGP, and has a split-screen view. These are all useful features, but K9 seems to be more than sufficient, particularly on a smaller tablet such as the Nexus 7. And it's free. Another reason that email is now easy to handle on a tablet is SwiftKey, which has free and paid versions. After working with the free version for about 10 minutes, it was clear to me that buying the paid version, all of four bucks, would be a good buy. The free version actually isn't free. It's really just a free 30-day trial. If you don't pay up, it'll stop working a month later. I would have paid double or more the asking price, and I wish the developers would create an app for Windows tablets. Typing on a Windows tablet is painful after using SwiftKey on an Android device. And if you happen to have both an Android phone and an Android tablet, you need to pay that four bucks just once. According to the developers, once you've purchased SwiftKey, as long as you continue to use the same account and app store that you originally purchased with, you'll be able to download and install SwiftKey on both devices. SwiftKey works by replacing the touch keyboard, but that's just the beginning. It also analyzes typing patterns and learns the words you use. After a few days, it started accurately predicting even unusual words that I use. And if you're multilingual, so is SwiftKey. The ability to type by swiping or sliding or gliding, whatever you want to call it, takes only a few minutes to get used to. I thought I would detest the glide option. You can still tap to type if you want, and you get all of the other features about analyzing your typing and learning your words. But I quickly found out that swiping is actually the superior method of typing on a tablet, which is why I wish there was a Windows version. I've included a little promotional video, it's less than two minutes long, on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The SwiftKey folks explain by showing exactly how the system works. There is one feature that's a bit of a drag, though. Every time the developers issue an update, the tablet reverts to the built-in keyboard. The default keyboard is gray, and I use a red interface for SwiftKey, so the change is immediately obvious if I happen to miss the upgrade notice on the main page. This is done for security reasons, and I understand the reasoning, but it's still uh, an annoyance, a very minor annoyance. If you'd like more information on K9 or SwiftKey, you'll find links to both websites from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Several weeks ago, I mentioned that I'd stopped using Firefox because it routinely caused a computer with a fast processor and a lot of memory to slow unacceptably. Fast processor, i7. A lot of memory, 32 gigabytes. Since then, I've been using Chrome as my primary browser, 
Maxlaw, the Chinese entry in the browser market, is my secondary browser, and Internet Explorer, Opera, or Firefox when I need a third browser. You might be wondering how this is working out. Although I still prefer the Firefox user interface to Chrome's, the transition has been relatively smooth. Three plugins provide either functionality that Firefox provided or that I obtained with plugins. The first is Adblock. It's available for both Chrome and Firefox, so really not very much has changed there. Adblock Plus blocks all ads by default. That includes video ads on YouTube, Facebook ads, flash banners, pop-ups, pop-unders, and pretty much everything else. It's available for Firefox, Chrome, and Opera, but not Internet Explorer. There's also a version for Android smartphones and tablets. Some websites that you like may depend on advertising revenues, so the developers do make it possible for you to allow inobtrusive advertising to be displayed. By default, the program allows these, but you can also block those if you want to. Second is NoScript. It works only with Firefox, but Script Defender is available for Chrome, and in some ways it works better. NoScript, for example, has an Allow This Page option that one might expect would allow all scripts attached to a given page to run. Trouble is that some scripts eventually call other scripts, and those scripts may call still more. NoScript doesn't honor the all request in a case like that, so as a result it might be necessary to click allow all this page half a dozen times or more just to get a page with a lot of scripts to render properly. That's annoying. Script Defender makes it possible to approve individual scripts, but there's also an option to whitelist the entire domain, and that eliminates those annoying repeated warnings. The third addresses a Chrome shortcoming. It's a plugin called Sexy Undo Closed Tab. It works around what I consider a significant Chrome problem. I usually have a lot of tabs open, and as a result, each tab is very small. Each tab also contains an X that, if clicked, closes the tab. Well, the tabs themselves are so small that I often click the X instead of selecting the tab, particularly when I'm in a hurry. This plugin maintains a list of every tab I've ever closed, and reopening an accidentally closed tab involves just selecting it from the top of the list. It'd be better if somebody at Google would get a clue about this problem, but the workaround turns out to be adequate. But I had some other plugins that I used extensively with Firefox. For example, to determine what's wrong with a website page, it's helpful to be able to view the Document Object Model, or DOM. Essentially, this reveals the underlying structure of the page, and I had previously used several Firefox plugins to x-ray my pages. A web developer plugin for Chrome effectively replaces several Firefox plugins by including the ability to disable JavaScript, plugins, pop-ups, and notifications on a page, to manage cookies, to view cascading stylesheet codes and view or disable code that's intended for specific device types, to make major modifications to forms on a page, to hide, display, and resize images, to display an amazing amount of information about the page, to clear the browser's cache and history, to display a ruler, to show hidden elements, to examine the page outline, to resize the viewport, and to validate the HTML or CSS code. As multi-purpose tools go, this is little short of astounding. 
Ghostery was another of my favorites on Firefox. It reveals information about code that's on a page to collect users' statistics. In many cases, the code is harmless. For example, I use StatCounter on TechBiter Worldwide to determine how many people visit the site. No personally identifiable information is collected, so it's not something that should worry anybody. On the other hand, some sites employ techniques that attempt to learn enough about visitors to make it possible to serve ads that might interest them. Some people like this idea. Others don't. And finally, there are some tracking functions that are little short of malicious. Besides showing you what's on the site, Ghostery makes it possible to block individual components selectively. And on Firefox, I used a plugin called World IP to display where in the world, at least approximately, the site is located. This is shown in the address line by displaying a tiny flag. On Chrome, a plugin with a really long name, IP Who Is in Flags, Chrome, and Websites Rating. What a name. Uh, this is a plugin that does actually quite a bit more. Click the flag to display a panel with information about the site's popularity, its IP address, a closer approximation of its location, the owner of the hosting operation, and the name servers in use by the site. There's also a link to a Whois lookup function and tabs for user-contributed reviews of the site, reviews of the current page, and a ranking from Norton SafeWeb. Today, more similarities exist between browsers than differences. Maxthon has the smallest number of add-ons in English, and Firefox clearly has the most, but Chrome and Opera both have a modest number of add-ons that cover most of the basic needs. Even Internet Explorer has some add-ons available, if you can figure out how to obtain them and how to install them. So far, I haven't been that desperate. when phones were just phones. Maybe you do, too. They were wired to a wall outlet. Then they got smart enough to remember phone numbers. And then they became mobile. Now your phone does a lot more than just make calls. It probably has stored usernames and passwords. It may have links to your bank account, photos, lots of personal information. And these phones have a significant resale value even without the data. So is it any wonder that smartphones are attractive to crooks? If your phone is stolen, it'd be nice to be able to just call your provider and have them flip a kill switch that would make the phone unusable. Nice, but the manufacturers and cellular providers have essentially refused to consider any system that would actually be functional. The carriers do have a database that identifies stolen phones, and that should keep stolen phones from being used in the United States. And they have grudgingly agreed to start installing anti-theft applications on phones within a year. Many stolen phones, though, are sent to other countries where they can be repurposed and put into service.
That doesn't mean the situation is hopeless. Far from it. Most smartphones have some security functions built in, and there are apps you can download and add additional features, such as the ability to remotely delete data on the phone or have the device send information about its location. Too few people bother to use these features, though. Other than maintaining a high level of awareness about your phone's location, there's not much you can do to keep your phone from being stolen. Now that sounds obvious, but even people who are normally very careful about things like this can be distracted and can leave a phone or a tablet lying on a table in a public location. And stop looking at me that way. And yes, I did. But I remembered it and got it back. If security applications for smartphones seem to be a solution in search of a problem, consider this. Consumer Reports says that more than 3 million smartphones were stolen last year. Another 1.5 million phones were simply lost. Because of all the private information contained in smartphones, losing a phone today is at least as serious as losing a wallet. At the very least, you should set a password for any portable device. That makes the device slightly less convenient to use, but it can stop a thief from being able to see your data if the phone is stolen. My Android tablet has a grid that allows me to draw a pattern to unlock it. The Windows-based tablet I use has a similar function. Unlocking either of these devices takes less than a second. That's hardly inconvenient. Applications are available to back up the data on your phone or tablet. Backup is just as important for these portable devices as it is for your desktop or notebook computer. And because they can be so easily stolen or lost, maybe it's more important. Safe is always better than sorry. short circuits, the FCC moves to wound net neutrality. Hope that FCC Commissioner Tom Wheeler would modify his fast lane, slow lane proposal that would end the internet as we know it today were dashed Thursday when the agency voted to take the next step in the process that many say will create an internet that will serve existing large companies and stifle competition. By allowing providers to create a fast lane, the proposal relegates any company that can't afford to pay ransom to the slow lane. And that means startup companies, the next Amazon or the next Google, won't be able to get off the ground because they won't be able to pay for the fast lane service. And without that, impatient internet users won't patronize their services. Big companies like Netflix will be able to pay broadband providers, opening new revenue streams for the providers. But the broadband providers are unlikely to roll back prices that we consumers pay. Meanwhile, companies like Netflix will raise their prices, as Netflix has already indicated that it will do, to cover the extra cost. The overall result? Worse service, higher prices. 
But if there's a bright side to this story, it's that Wheeler's proposal at least would classify broadband providers properly as utilities, and this would give the FCC considerably more leeway in regulating them. But overall, what we have here seems to be a fine example of a decision that will give some corporations tangible short-term benefits, but stands to harm everybody in the longer term. The decision, of course, isn't a done deal yet. Thursday's action simply put the proposal out for public comment. There's already been quite a bit of public comment. And after another month or six weeks of public comment, the FCC commissioners are expected to disregard all the comments, follow the money, and vote to approve Wheeler's corporate-sponsored proposal. Would now be a good time to mention that Wheeler worked for the National Cable and Television Communications Association from 1976 to 1984, and that he was president of the group starting in 1979? Would now be a good time to mention that Wheeler was the CEO of the Cellular Telecommunications and Internet Association? Would now be a good time to mention that this is a pretty good example of the revolving door policy? by which people move seamlessly between jobs in regulatory agencies and the very businesses that those regulatory agencies are supposed to be watching? In 2009, a lawyer in Spain, Mario Costea, typed his name in a Google search box. This was the first step in what has become a protracted legal battle. Costea's search returned legal notices that were no longer valid. The lawyer asked Google to remove the links. Google refused. This week, the European Court of Justice told Google that it has to comply with Costea's request. What does this mean throughout Europe? And are there implications in the United States? Got a couple of short answers for you. To the first, it's complicated. And to the second, maybe. In Europe, nearly 30 national regulatory agencies will need to interpret the ruling and devise procedures to deal with it. In the U.S., the ruling has no legal power, but similar legal actions could be taken here. One significant question deals with what responsibilities Google actually has. Google, after all, simply indexes billions of web pages and provides a way to search the resulting index. Google doesn't own, maintain, or control the data, just the links. The 13 judges who made the ruling in Luxembourg provided no guidance on how to implement their ruling. There was also no indication in the written decision that the judges had any idea how complex this issue is. In other words, the judges on the European Court of Justice appear to be just as clueless about technology as are justices in the U.S. Supreme Court. Search engine operators such as Google will probably have to develop guidelines and procedures to handle requests from those who want to have links that involve information about them erased. This is not going to be easy to implement. And in the U.S., the decision may have some impact, but keep this in mind. 
First Amendment rights could trump those privacy concerns. there have been lots of predictions about how connected devices will work together to help us. In fact, I remember writing a paper back in the 1970s in which I described a smart home that was going to be controlled by a computer. Back then, I envisioned something about the size of a small car that would have been stored in the basement. But I got some of it right. Today, we're a lot closer to what I wrote about back then with devices that have some built-in intelligence. The Pew Research Center's Internet Project says much of what I was thinking about in the 1970s will become reality sometime in the 2020s. All right, they didn't actually specifically address my predictions, but you get the idea. The research, conducted in cooperation with Elon University's Imaging the Internet Center, says wearable computers and what's been called the Internet of Things will become the norm within the next 10 years or so. The researchers questioned analysts, developers, and others who will be responsible for inventing the future. Most of the respondents say that we will wear health and fitness trackers. Several people I know are already wearing Fitbit monitors. They say that our homes will have sensors that will watch for problems. They say that municipalities and utility companies will use more monitoring devices to maintain their systems. Maybe your car will be able to send you an email saying you need to drop it off for service next Tuesday because the fuel injection system needs to be adjusted and it has already made an appointment. What used to be bulky sensors are being miniaturized to the point that a garment a baby would wear can monitor the child and alert parents if there's a problem. The Pew Report says that not everybody thinks this is a good idea. In part, this is because humans are inherently resistant to change. And in part, it's because of security concerns. After all, what if somebody hacks into your health monitor? Or what if a vandal convinces your refrigerator to order 100 gallons of motor oil instead of a package of cream cheese? Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.